Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something because you're a girl or you shouldn't do something because you're a girl. That's the most rubbish thing I've ever heard. There would be times where I know I was underestimated or kind of dismissed because I was a woman in the room. Don't be afraid to question why. Hi, you're listening to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore ideas, teachings, and thoughts on empowering young girls and celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor. I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions of girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for vulnerable young girls, signifies. Our listeners are in for such a pleasurable and inspiring interview today. Our podcast guest described by Fortune magazine as the queen of British BC, is one of the UK's biggest tech personalities and one of London's most influential venture capitalists. Her more than 25-year career in tech has seen her cross paths with some of the greatest and most influential leaders of our modern world. She began her career in Silicon Valley, working for some of the world's most prestigious tech companies, including Apple, Yahoo, and Sun Microsystems. In 2004, she moved to London, what a game for London town, to become one of Skype's earliest employees. In 2011, she became a founding partner of Passion Capital, an early stage venture capital firm that has invested in the likes of Monzo and GoCardless. Since its launch, Passion has made 70 tech investments worth $134 million. Yes, you heard me right. At Passion, she serves as a board director for several other companies, including one of my favorites, Butternut Box. You have a pet, you will know this company too. Her contributions to digital phenomena do not stop there. She also sits as chair of Tech City UK, promoting Britain's digital economy. Impressively, Her Majesty's Treasury Special Envoy for FinTech and also a tech ambassador for the Mayor of London's office. And as if that wasn't strikingly notable already, my guest also served on the former UK Prime Minister David Cameron's Business Advisory Group. In November 2018, she was named to the Financial Times list of the top 100 minority ethnic leaders in technology and three years prior to this awarded an MBE in the 2015 Queen's Birthday Honours for Services to Business. I mean, I wouldn't blame you if you thought I was going to go into conversation with someone straight out of a James Bond film. It sure feels like that to me. She could actually be a film star on Sheer Looks Alone, a real-life superwoman. I would like to extend a very warm welcome to Eileen Burbridge. What an extraordinary and remarkable woman you are. It is such an honor to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much, Ramita. That is such a generous introduction. I'm blushing head to <laughs> I think it's too, too kind. But thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
They're all facts. I'm merely relaying them. <laughs> Only the messenger here. You are really such a busy woman and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be here with me today. Um, it's obviously a remarkably strange time across the world. You're sitting in the UK, I'm sitting in Singapore. Slightly different rules with the government, but still you're in the middle of a pandemic. And how are you and the family coping? That's the first question I wanted to ask you. Oh, thanks for asking. No, we're really good. Uh, I mean, we're, we're very, very fortunate and you'll know from you know where you were in London we've got a lot of outdoor space um, we've got a great support network the children are all super healthy um, and you know we survived remote sort of home learning without any major issues or meltdowns yeah. and they're back at school off of her half term now but back at school for the new school year and, and we're all really good and we're all very very grateful Oh, I'm so pleased to hear it and hopefully you stay healthy and happy and things will move on quickly. As we've all just heard from the intro, you have a remarkable career. I wondered if you might share or if you had any insight at a particular age and when you knew this was definitely the path for you or if it just happened to come along in an organic way or how you ended up yeah. where you are. Yeah, such a flattering way to pose a question because it does suggest that I would know what I'm doing. But in, and no, I actually, I never knew. It's been very accidental. And as you said, very, very organic. I feel like I've, I've, I've been incredibly lucky to have the sort of choices that I've had or to have, you know, situations and opportunities present themselves. I would not have guessed that I would be an investor at this stage. And I did come into it quite by accident without really knowing much about the sector. You know, it's it's from when I left Skype. I had stayed in touch with the Skype founding engineers. Um, not to go into too long of a story, but they then set up a private fund with the proceeds uh, that they made when Skype was sold to eBay. So they, as engineers, owned 5% of Skype when it was sold to eBay and then set up a 50 million euro private fund just to invest in entrepreneurs and to try and boost, you know, like-minded geeks, as they would describe it, who would want to start businesses. I was actually on maternity leave with my eldest. So I had a little bit more free time than I guess I normally would have done when I was working at Yahoo right before then. And they asked me initially just to start looking at business plans and just give them my opinion because I had been doing product development, because I had worked in Silicon Valley, um, because I had worked with maybe a wider range of people and personalities than they had done in the Baltics. Mm. And so they would initially just say, what do you think about this business plan? Do you think that it sounds probable, mostly from a product point of view? And it just sort of expanded from there. And before I knew it and before they knew it, and we weren't even using the right words, I was helping them to do, you know, investment due diligence. I was helping them to lead the investments. You know, I thought I was just, you know, getting to work with people on really exciting projects and how to help them spin it up. Um, and that's really all it was. But wow. um, they ended up making four investments in London in that subsequent year and a half. So then I ended up representing them on those boards and I would sort of, you know, be involved with those companies and that's how it happened. It really was just working with good friends and former colleagues in what they were wanting to do, which was to support entrepreneurs starting their own businesses. And I thought it was a privilege. I remember thinking at the time, I never would get a job if I'd applied for one doing what I was doing. I don't have an MBA. Um, I'm really bad with maths in my head, which is really embarrassing. I'm just not the cookie cutter investor, uh, certainly what was at the time. I think it's evolved a little bit since then, especially in the tech sector. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't have the background to get hired into venture investing. So I really did get lucky and I really enjoyed what I was doing. And then I started a fund with my partners uh, in yeah. 2011. 
It's so interesting. Yeah, you say that you're not a cookie cutter, but I think the your uniqueness, your ability to think outside the box is probably what kept the success levels and people attracted to you. I, I mean, that's incredibly informative and, I, and, and it's nice to hear and, and nice for girls to get that message that you don't have to A, go to business school or B, get an MBA, like you say, or, you know, follow a certain set path to end up where we are. I think that for me, it was always about thinking about the next step as a step to something else. So long as that step was somewhere or someplace figuratively, you know, that I would be learning, that I would be uh, challenging myself and that I would be developing skills. It was never seen, you know, it couldn't be a bad step to take. Taking that step would lead to who knows what other steps or doorways and opportunities. And for me, that's always the way I've taken my decisions, whether it was to do that um, with them on investments, uh, the Skype founders, whether it was to come to London in the first place, whether it was to consider a new company, for example, or a new job. It's always been about, well, if this next step, you know, is somewhere where I can grow, develop, challenge myself, do things I'm really fascinated about doing... Surely that can't be a bad thing, right? No, I think that's incredibly ambitious and really insightful. It's a really good message for all of us, even any age, but particularly for young girls who might be fearful to take risks. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we as we discuss your particular role in, in what you do now. But I do think there is an, an intrinsic motivation that you must have carried with you. And I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Like you are by background born in America and the American dream is sort of, you can be anything you like any at any point point, you can achieve whatever you like. I love the way they sort of build that up because the opportunities are there waiting for you. Did you feel that growing up in America? Were you always sort of empowered to feel that whatever you wanted to do, you could? I mean, when you were a kid, did you think the sky was the limit? Did you always grow up with that ethos? Yeah, I mean, probably not quite as fantastically as as you've just described it. I I don't think I, I probably wasn't creative enough to think about where I could go or sort of sky's the limit. But certainly from my parents, I always grew up feeling empowered and that I would be able to do, you know, anything that I set my mind to. So that was really, really empowering. And I grew up where my mother was a working mom as well. And so I had seen her, you know, thrive in her work, in her professional career. And so for me, I thought it was a no brainer. It wasn't anything different And so I did assume I would have some form of career. I think the one thing that my parents, though, did instill in me that might be different from maybe broad-based America, but I think is maybe not too different or non-standard for sort of first-generation immigrants, Mm -hmm. since my parents had emigrated to the U.S. uh, for their own higher education. For me, they always, always emphasize the importance of education and being able to educate yourself and to have you know, skills to fall back on. Mm -hmm. And so for my parents, they had always said... You can choose to do whatever you want for your career, but it was heavily qualified by, you know, get a university degree. That was really important to my parents, you know, get a university degree in um, a qualification or in an area where you will always be able to find work. You know, it was no illusions about find the dream job, but where you will always be able to find work so that if needed, you'll always be able to sort of, you know, be self-supporting. You'll be able to support yourself financially. Um, That was kind of their criteria and their qualification. Beyond that, they said, once you get that degree, they didn't mind what I did. And then they said, yeah, the sky's the limit. You can do whatever you want. But they did impress upon me that, you know, the importance of education and having a foundation or what they describe as sort of a a net, a safety net to, to make it therefore easier to take the risks and be creative as you're describing, I think. Did your family emigrate? Yeah, I actually both parents uh, emigrated from Taiwan. They were both born in China on the mainland, but 
families had emigrated from the mainland to Taiwan during the revolution. And so when they came to the U.S. for their advanced degrees, they had come from Taiwan. So did, were you sort of inspired? I was definitely, and similarly, a first-generation Canadian. Watched my parents work incredibly hard so that we could have opportunities in the education that they may not have had time for themselves. They sacrificed a lot of things with each other in order for their children to always have access to higher education and make sure that we always had the opportunities that we wanted for ourselves. So I think that always met, made me feel not indebted, but certainly grateful for my for my opportunities and not to take it for granted right and not yeah. to squander it yeah. yeah yeah so i think i did yeah we, we i similarly have to agree with you there that sort of drive was there because i knew what it took for them to put us there if that makes sense so i think we share that a lot but was there any differences for being a female in a very male dominated industry for you yeah so as you say growing up because i grew up with a brother who's just one year younger than me uh, my parents were brilliant in that there was not a distinction made between sort of what girls could do and what boys could do and so that was really i think that i, I don't think i realized until recently or in my adult life how much that helped to shape me right so i wasn't pigeonholed um we weren't sort of discouraged from doing certain things because they might be boy things or, or whatnot. No double standards, no. even in the dating game? <laughs> uh, probably in the dating, but definitely more subtle and, and not relating to work. Okay. Not okay. relating to work. So I think that's the important thing, but you're right. You're right. There would have been other places, but I think the other thing was growing up and I, I should have corrected. So I grew up in the Midwestern parts of the States, but I moved to California after university. So growing up in the Midwest in a Chicago suburb, it's sort of the heartland of the country. There weren't that many other, you know, Asian Americans, East Asian or South Asian. So I was always very, very aware and felt really conspicuous and out of place for being Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me growing up, it never occurred to me that there would be a disadvantage to being a girl mm -hmm. or female. So for example, I remember in school thinking about it and actually thinking that life would be easier if I was a white girl, you wow. know? Uh, and so for me, it was always, I guess, the color sort of standing out. And I, it never occurred to me that gender could be at a disadvantage. Now that's a bit of, that's a kind of privilege really not to have to think of it that way. But for me, I was always so much more mindful and just, again, cognizant of being, you know, a different race mm -hmm. that I sort of thought if, if I can sort of overcome whatever those stereotypes are, that I'd be fine. And so it didn't really dawn on me that being a woman in business was actually going to hold me back. I always thought it would probably be, you know, being the ethnic minority. But now I realize how it's probably both. Um, and I just kind of channeled it into thinking one was more conspicuous than the other when really, obviously, it's definitely both, right? Right. And how did you handle it? What were your coping strategies around all of that? I think part of it was being slightly oblivious to it, which is a bit of privilege because I'd always been so well supported by my family and growing up and also, you know, with friends and, and sort of being able to therefore have the confidence yeah. that if I applied myself to things, I could trust myself to know that, you know, I had reasonable judgment, wasn't going to be right all the time or even half the time, but to sort of back myself. Um, and so I think in in a, in a business situation, if I was the only woman or if I was the only minority, or even if I had a different view from everybody else, I sort of learned to, to back myself. But I think what my parents also instilled in me was to sort of let, you know, actions speak louder than words and let my work speak for myself more than trying 
to, to make a point about asserting myself um, before I could demonstrate, I guess, my worth or, or the value. And so I did always, you know, work really hard as I think, you know, like you said, you know, parents of immigrants or children of immigrants where our parents are immigrants, you, you kind of see that. So it's, it becomes second nature. Um, I've always worked really hard, been able to sort of back myself, um, have confidence in what I was doing. Um, and I think what I've learned over the decades of working is how to be more articulate and to how to say things better and how to back myself up with words mm-hmm. um, just as much as as I was able to with with my actions or with what I was able to deliver and bring to the table. I love that. That's so inspiring. I love hearing you talk, Eileen. I think these things are so empowering. No, really, I think it's really important to remember that because often we feel, or at least I feel like boardrooms or big rooms with lots of men who all want to get their voices heard sometimes can be I don't know, it can be quite challenging. And I, I, a little bit like you, sometimes sort of would rather just not say anything. And I think it's important to say things, but I think what you say about action speaking louder than words is probably something we can teach children from a very young age um, to learn and, and, and let that carry on through, through adult life. Um, and I guess I wondered if you thought there were any stigmas to being, uh, for young girls entering tech. I mean, maybe maybe you can explain to us what fintech means. Maybe some of our listeners don't know exactly what the definition of fintech and then working in the tech sector, which shouldn't be a, a job that we think that is male dominated, but um, or what, what should stop women from doing it? I just wondered if you had any thoughts on whether or not women or young girls felt that there were some stigmas around it. Yeah, of course. And I, I suspect that there are, and, and we've heard that there are, and, and you kind of see research that shows that girls particularly, you know, feel as if STEM subjects or math, you know, science, um, electronics, engineering, computing are are meant to be sort of boys subjects. So we've seen that research and therefore that does feed into the fact that I do think girls probably think tech as a sector is very male dominated or, or sort of more cut out for boys than they would be for girls. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that that's changing um, over time. Of course, it can't change quickly enough. So we need to help accelerate that. And that's why I'm really pleased to be with you and talking about it today. And what you're doing at Elevate is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's, it's a misconception. It really is. I think there's a couple of ways I'd address that. First of all, I really think uh, over time, I don't know if it's five years, I don't know if it's going to take eight years, three or 10. I don't think we'll be talking about tech as a sector anymore. <laughs> I really think you won't have companies, businesses, or enterprises that don't have, you know, digital or technology at the core of how they're delivering to their customers or how they're managing supply chains or how they're producing things. I really think every business that's still relevant in some years time has to have a lot of tech. And and we can think of what we think about as, I guess, traditional non-tech sectors, whether it's banking or maybe it's retail and it's shopping or it's growth. But if you start to think about all these sectors, they are all getting tech enabled. And yeah. so I don't think we're going to be thinking about tech as a separate sector. I really don't. And it that helps to illustrate the point that within a technology company or in that context, it's not just computer scientists, even though girls should absolutely um, pursue computer science if they if they love the sort of analytics um, and how to sort of think in a very analytical way. Um, but you know, 
there's marketing roles in tech. There are design roles in tech. There are, you know, customer support roles in tech. It's, there's every role that you would have at any other company within tech companies as well. Um, and I think just to your, your one point, you know, FinTech specifically is effectively just how digital technology is uh, improving or innovating in financial services. So that's what we mean by FinTech. And so maybe, you know, you can think about um, payment apps or payment services um, or even, you know, mobile banking apps as FinTech. But really, if you look at even, you know, existing incumbent banks, Standard Chartered and the likes, um, or DBS, they're all becoming incredibly tech-enabled and tech-centric. And so don't know that it's, again, that there'll be a distinction between financial services and fintech over time. For now, there is maybe because there are different pathways into those kinds of companies. But yeah. I think over time, it's going to start to blend. And then I think the only other thing I wanted to add, maybe sorry to sort of tie this back to our last topic about, um, you know, getting the confidence or or how it feels to be maybe a woman in these fields, which might be dominated by men. One thing I really found early on, which I ended up feeling more empowered by, and so I kind of was able to channel that in a certain way, is that it's true there would be times where I know I was underestimated or kind of dismissed because I was a woman in the room or because I was Asian in the room. You know, I've been asked if I speak English. I've been asked, you know, you know, all sorts, all sorts of things. I've been presumed to be somebody's EA or secretary or the sort of junior person to somebody who reported to me. I've had, you know, I've had all of that based on, you know, other people's unconscious bias. And so there have been times where it's really clear people didn't really expect much from me. You know, they might have thought I was only in the room for diversity or to make somebody feel better, or I don't know, they had to invite me. whatever the reason might be. It was assumed maybe that I was there for, you know, less reason than other people or certainly men. And I think what's really amazing about that is it ends up really being a bit of a superpower because then if you just say something that's reasonably intelligent, everybody's really amazed and really impressed. And they're like, wow, she's really smart. But in fact, you know, it's just something that was, you know, reasonably sensible. And then because they expected that you might not have anything to say, or you might be really unopinionated, you end up sort of really over exceeding their expectations. And so that's always been something that, um, you know, helps me because sort of psychologically, I don't worry about people um, underestimating me because mm -hmm. I just think that's just going to make it all the better when they find out again how the actions them, sort of speak. When you show yeah. them your cards, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you can keep your poker face on for as long as you need, and then and then let, I'm impressed. I mean, that is, I can imagine lots of people would be incredibly frustrated in that in those situations and may not have the insight to be able to hold ground the way you have and be able to conduct yourself in that way. And, and, and I think it speaks volumes for your professionalism as well. I, I, I understand where you're coming from in terms of turning it into your superpower, but I think it's an incredibly positive way to think about someone else's unconscious bias, which of course, one of the things we need to do more and more in education in all fields, girls and boys, is, is to try and break these unconscious bias and these views about people I, I often find that really upsetting as well I've, I've met with someone recently who's who he was spoken to as if he was there to clean the barrister's rooms and they thought he was a janitor but he was actually the QC because he was Asian he was colored you know mm -hmm. like and it was just so upsetting to for him but at the same time he just sort of thought every time I think we've moved on 
I, I have an experience like that. And I think maybe we haven't moved on enough. So there's, there's still more work to do. Yeah. There's still more to do today. So conversations like this one, I think are all the more key and, and probably more needed than we, than I even thought growing up in a multicultural world where I, I didn't always feel those things, but I think lots and lots of people do. On that note then, you know, you're a role model for so many young girls who might otherwise feel quite intimidated to enter the world that you're in. And I think you've just spoken to that a little bit. Um, but would you say there are certain characteristics in your personality uh, or in one's personality that you need to sustain in order to have success in your sector? I mean, what, what would you, I imagine you need to be a really confident risk taker. I think you need to have innate um, sort of resilience to be able to put up with a lot of these things. And these are the sort of superpowers I sort of talk about at, at Elevate that I want to cultivate more of. But I wonder if you believe that that's something women need more of, um, particularly in a sector like yours, or do you think it's just across the board that women definitely just need a lot of these skills? My guess is it's probably across the board yeah. because I think that given, as you were just describing, unconscious bias exists sort of every, you know, it exists when we go to the grocery store, it exists when we're driving behind a car, it, mm-hmm. it's everywhere. So I think across the board, I would, you know, definitely encourage girls to, to have more confidence, to, to know that they have a right to be wherever they are. Mm-hmm. They have a right to their voice. They have a right to say what's on their mind um, and that they have the right to back themselves up. And so I think that's everywhere. It'll only obviously go to helping them even more in business and certainly in tech for sure. But I'm not sure that tech has a, has a greater requirement for that than say, as you, you know, the legal profession, mm-hmm. um, which is probably, you know, even even more traditional, far more traditional than technology. Mm. Um, I think, as you say, it's confidence. It's also, uh, you know, I do think there has to be a willingness to, to dig in and work hard. I think that um, you mentioned resilience, which is a, is a really flattering way to put it. I think patience, mm. it helps to be patient. It is a long game, you know. Um, yeah. I think, you know, I believe in karma or sort of what goes around will come around. And so therefore, we work hard, we're well-intended, uh, we're trying to do the right thing, we're even trying to do the best thing um, for ourselves or to, you know, contribute, whether it's to a project, a company, a team. Um, it will, you know, it will manifest itself. It will get recognized. It might be super frustrating about whether it takes us longer than other people or other demographics or men or otherwise, but it will happen. There will be time. And so patience, I think, is really important. And then that's why it's more than important to get the gratification, self-gratification. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it can be incredibly frustrating if we're going to wait for other people to recognize what we've done. If we know, if we kind of keep in mind, this is what I've set out to do for myself, you know, in order to feel good about what I'm doing. And then I do that. That should, you know, I should, I should really take that and really, really be able to sort of harvest that and keep that so that even if that's not being recognized externally, I'm going to be able to use that to build on my increasing confidence uh, over time for the next milestone or the next thing that I want to set my mind to. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. You sort of spoke quite highly of your parents being very supportive and very encouraging. Did you have any other mentors or role models as you were going through this your in your career? Because I think it also must have required, you say patience. But it can take quite a toll on someone to continually be as patient as you probably had to demonstrate or also um, just to be championed, just to have support. Did you have a I know now there's lots of things like women's networking events and things like that. But I imagine when you started out, was it like that when for you in your career? 
Yeah, no, it wasn't. I think it was just a, it was just very organic and sort of the people you ended up working with or working for or, you know, having as your manager, they were sort of good and bad. It was just sort of potluck. Mm-hmm. I, I do remember, for example, one of my managers at Sun Microsystems, he's, you know, still one of the ones that stands out for me in my head, um, you know, and he was the first person to that I would sort of get used to going to and sort of saying, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I want to do, what do you think? And he sort of, he was, his management style was, yeah, go do that. Sounds terrific. And I was sort of like, are you sure? That's fine. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And he sort of said to me, listen, and I remember he's like, Eileen, my practice is I try and hire people who are smarter than me or know more about something than I do. So I don't have to worry about it. I think I've done that with you. Now you go prove that out and I'll let you know if I end up disagreeing or it doesn't you know, work out the right way, but you go do it. And he was, he was fantastic just because he gave me the confidence and empowered me and said, listen, I'm not going to, you know, breathe down your neck. You don't have to check everything by me. You know, you're in this role because yeah. you, there's merit for you to do that. And I want to see you therefore do it. Um, and then I always had the sense that he had my back as well. So mm-hmm. that was hugely helpful, but no, we didn't, we didn't even talk about it as sort of in a mentor way. I don't think that word was being used that much at the time. It was just that he was a great manager. He made me therefore want to prove him right. Do you know what I mean? He sort of, it was such a motivating force uh, for him to say it that way. And then also just just remember that and I've taken that and that's the way then I want to work with other people that I work with as well. So it was just by example that I've had some really, really outstanding examples. I would also say, again, this is where patience has to come into it though. I've had some not so great examples. And I think when we have experiences where we feel marginalized, we're not being, you know, acknowledged, our work is, you know, someone else is taking credit for it, sort of all the horrific things that can happen um, at work, you know, it's 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 good to remember and harness those feelings so that, you know, you're kind of more mindful not to do that, even inadvertently, you know, how could this, how could my action be perceived in a certain way? And I remember what it felt like when I was, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's um, learning from good examples, but also not so great examples to tell us what not to do. I think it's yeah. really important. Yeah. That sort of speaks to the whole superpower of empathy, doesn't it? I think having that ability to yeah. put yourself in other shoes, other people's shoes, remembering what it was like for you um, offers so much support to others, doesn't it? And I think you were allowed that freedom with your manager. He sounds like a very inspirational chap, actually, which is which is wonderful. And I, I, I yeah, I, you know, sort of talking about the decisions that you've got to make on a day-to-day basis, I wonder what it's like for you. What kind of pressures do you face in your day-to-day decision-making? And are there sort of examples of, I'm going to put this in quotes because I don't like to teach kids about failure, but anything that you sort of looked at as failure and in hindsight, you sort of wished you'd had a different reaction to, but have been able to since look at it as a growth opportunity or as a learning experience. Yeah, I think one thing, and again, this could be self-delusion. So I'm not, you're super flattering and generous about how I sort of harness all this, but um, I, I really haven't ever looked back on anything and thought, oh, I wish I could have, or or sort of with regret, if that makes any sense. Because I do think, even if it came out differently than what I'd hoped or expected, it clearly informed sort of what I did afterwards. And so everything that I've done, mm-hmm. um, again, as long as when I took that step in the first place, I knew what I was trying to get out of it and what what I would get back, even if again on the surface maybe it didn't yield I don't know a great investment or a great outcome in a certain meeting or something like that. Again, as long as I could feel, okay, I, but I know why I did it the way I did it. And that's what I was trying to get from it. Now I know how that 
you know, ended up with certain consequences, I'll know better next time not to. And then it probably helped me in a, in a more important setting the next time. Do you know what I mean? Everything. So I think everything builds on itself and does lend to uh, molding sort of how we t- make judgments, how discerning we are and what we do. So I actually, I don't sort of look back and regret anything that happened because if I hadn't had even, I guess what would have been negative experiences wouldn't have helped me to, you know, be more alert in a, in another similar situation. It wouldn't have warned me against what could happen if it was more at stake or something like that. So Amazing. I really haven't had that. Yeah. And I think that if I've always sort of thought about it in a way, a metaphor, you know, if you can sleep well at night, you know, you have to answer to yourself first and foremost. And there have been times where I've been outspoken against things or I've not wanted to do certain things. And it was simply because it doesn't feel right. Mm. Doesn't, you know, I need to act with integrity. I need to be comfortable with myself. I need to, you know, feel like I actually did right by people um, or given the information that I had at the time. And I think that's just the best sort of safety check. Are you going to be able to sleep well at night? That's a great question. I wish more people asked themselves that. It's really Especially in public office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I guess personally, did you find life to be different for you as a working professional in America versus working in Europe, um, having an Asian background? I know we've spoken a little bit about that already, but in terms of work ethos, did you find the environments incredibly different for your, in your workplace at all or not so much? Are they pretty much similar? I think when I got here to London 16 years ago, they were very different in tech and in business. I remember I used to be quite astounded at how busy all the pubs were at 5, 530. <laughs> and I was sort of like, who's, who's leaving at five o'clock? Do they really leave at five o'clock? Um, you know, but I had come from uh, the Silicon Valley sort of Bay Area where it's it's probably too extreme, right? It's not sustainable. And you're seeing a lot now with people talking about mental health and what's good and healthy for people and ecosystems and communities. So I'm not saying that that was a good thing at all, but I did come from one extreme to, I think, a more European or British, you know, culture of working and and a much better work-life balance um, commitment. And so it was quite different in a way, I guess, because of the, the way that I came, I was probably seen as an even harder worker than I actually was, or certainly than what I was used to. Um, so that was, that was actually helpful. I think that I benefited from my experience is in America because of, you know, the British tech sector um, and also what the British government was wanting to do to support this sector and, and therefore then wanting to see what I'd observed and what lessons that I could bring over from the States. Mm-hmm. Um, what did I see in Silicon Valley? And I probably, again, I got, I think, I think a lot more opportunities because of that. There really wasn't, I didn't have any answers. There was, mm-hmm. there was I'd probably write a book or do something differently, but I think that that helped me, um, you know, get get asked a lot more than I otherwise would have gotten uh, if I'd been in Britain all along, perhaps. Yeah. Or if I'd just not spent 10 years in Silicon Valley. Um, I think that there was also, you know, a push in David Cameron's administration, certainly, and subsequent to that, you know, for greater diversity and inclusion in some of the business groups or the roundtables or just the conversations that were being had about policymaking. Um, so I benefited from that as well. I'm sure I did. It sounds like an amazing balance to have reached, though. I'm pleased that you're able to get, hopefully, get to a pub at five o'clock on some days anyway, <laughs> if not every day. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I, I have to say, I also found the, the leaving work on a Friday and, and just the busyness of, of London was incredible for me to see as well. I've just never seen that before. Speaking of Silicon Valley, I'm going to quote you in one of your interviews. You said that you were, in quotes, a Silicon Valley cliche. 
Um, you did this for a financial news interview. I would love to pick your brains on what that, what you could expand on that for me. What is the Silicon Valley cliche? Well, I think it's changing now and I think it's changing for the better. But I think what I meant by that was when I, when I arrived in London, I, I was probably a walking cliche. So I was, you know, in my early thirties, I had been living in San Francisco. I had, you know, one of these these houses that, you know, is in lower Pacific Heights. And, you know, it just sort of looks like the San Francisco type architecture. I was commuting down to Silicon Valley, driving, you know, on the motorway back and forth every day. I had a sports car, you know, I had benefited from a company going public. Um, You know, there were events almost every night for networking or for certain product launches, um, you know, and those kinds of things. So my friends and I would, would literally decide our evenings based on which companies were throwing what parties and who would have like a DJ versus who was going to have food. And so it was very much the, um, the dot-com heyday is, okay. is what I kind of bought into, but I really, really liked, I kind of, I, I ha- wasn't there of course, but I assume it might've been similar to like a, an, a unique experience like wall street, you know, yeah. in the, I don't know, seventies and eighties. Um, so I think Silicon Valley in the 90s is a certain point in time that culturally probably isn't going to happen again. Um, But I I sort of soaked it up and I did enjoy it. Excellent. Excellent. I'm so glad you were there to witness it all and and (laughs) tell stories to your children um, in years to come, I'm sure. Okay, so I I was trying to work out what exactly that meant, but I I think you reap the benefits of all the fantastic opportunities in in, in Silicon. I love that. I love it. Um, And then tell me, how have you enjoyed your experiences working in politics and being involved in policy decisions? I wonder if you sometimes found it a little bit frustrating because some you might have a lot of ideas and some of these ideas don't gain momentum as quickly as they might do in the private sector or in business in the business world. What, what was it like or what is it like for you in politics? Yeah, I think it's interesting because with politics, probably more so than tech, um, I, I probably had much more imposter syndrome. than I did with my work because I felt like, you know, being, I'm now a British national um, and I am a citizen, but sort of when I was first being asked to um, opine about things uh, that policymakers cared about, I sort of didn't know if I would have the right context. I didn't grow up in this country. I don't know the school system, you know, all sorts of things. And so I had really great imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, But I realized or what the way I got over that was I thought, you know, it's a privilege to be asked. and there are certain things that I think could be better or could be different or get, you know, that frustrate me if I see decisions being made. So if that's going to be the case, then if I don't speak when asked, you know, what right would I have to complain or to be disappointed by anything else? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think being part of the conversation, therefore, sort of forced me to, okay, well, then bring your best answer and research it and make sure you can back it up with either your intuition or the data. Um, and so it has been. I think it's been a privilege. It has been frustrating for sure, like you say, um, because there's always other things that that you'd love to have influence or impact in. But then the the takeaway has to be, well, hopefully the decision was better informed because of the input I gave than it might have been otherwise. Um, and I think we have to sort of take the the incremental wins. Um yeah. And it's again, it's about patience because it's a it's a longer term thing, right? We're not going to sort of turn everything or or make everything what we think is perfect straight away. But it, it's been it's been really fascinating. Um, it's been super interesting. I I um 
I think it's just, you know, when, when you kind of watch policymakers and politicians often as, you know, citizens and people who care, we kind of see things and we're like, why are they doing, you know, it should be so obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think being involved in some of the conversations, you realize, you know, how, how many nuances there are, what the factors um, that need to be considered. And so it gives me a greater appreciation for that. But um, these days, it's really easy to be frustrated at politics. Yeah, I know. The whole world, I, I'm quite happy to stay so far away from. But I, like you say, if you don't get involved and you don't have your voice heard, then change doesn't come either. So I suppose it's a double-edged sword. How do you see digital economy evolving, especially in the wake of the pandemic? I think I love what you said earlier about the tech industry, maybe not even being around given the global yeah. pandemic and how much we relied on um, digital economy. I think that the digital economy will, we won't be saying digital economy anymore. It's its the economy. Yeah. And I think it's just going to be driving, you know, um, GDP growth, employment, you know, education, skills. Um, and I do think the pandemic has probably accelerated some of that. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously more people than ever were forced to be remote um, for communications, for business, for transactions. And so you saw, obviously, a huge, huge jump in cloud-based services. You mm-hmm. saw a huge jump in communication-based services. And I, I don't think even when, you know, there's a vaccine and even when we're, we're out of the pandemic, I don't think that's going to go away. Yeah. The acceleration might slow down, but it's it was always the direction we were heading towards. Um, the pandemic accelerated things, and we might not need that same acceleration, but I think it's still going that same way. Yeah. And probably a real sense of relief in many ways, because I think benefits have far outweighed anything else we could have ever hoped for if we didn't have it. Yeah. 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 And hopefully when we, if we don't need it in a, in a context of a pandemic, we can maybe use it for sort of inclusion and making sure that more people are included in conversations, more people are, you know, have access to things, products, services, again, conversations, decisions, policy, um, because technology can enable all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm going to switch a little bit to more of the back to being a, a working mother, your role as, 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 as an incredible influencer in the world of digital economy and tech. Knowing you personally outside of the world of your work, you are also an incredibly hardworking and thoughtful mother of a young family of five children. I mean, I am in awe of that. But I, I sort of wonder if you could, how, how do you manage it? What, what inspiration can you give? Um, do you ever have a bad day? <laughs> do you do you do you have help? What what? How are you managing to manage it? So they all super super generous. I think first of all, though, um, you will witness that I'm not the most organized person, so I'm not really very on top of my email inbox a lot of times. But a um, couple of things top of the list, I've always had help. And I think I'm incredibly fortunate for that. So I always had mother's help or a nanny or a childminder who was helping, um, you know, with school pickups so that I could, you know, continue doing a full day of work during the week. And and that's been a life a lifeline. There's no way I think I could have done it without help. So I've always had help and been really lucky to be able to afford that. Um, additionally, now I need to fess up. So we don't have them all the time. We co-parent um, with um, you know, our exes, our respective exes. So our household is full of five kids uh, every other week. And then every other week, there's no kids. So it's uh, either empty or it's full. And that gives that gives me relief that I think, you know, most working parents don't get. And so I'm incredibly lucky for that because obviously I'm, I'm dying to see them by the time they come back after seven days and we make the most of that quality time when we have them uh, in the house. So that helps a lot as well. So there's help and then there is co-parenting. Um, and then I think the other thing is I have learned over the years to be kind 
kinder to myself or to be uh, a little more forgiving. And I think this is something that's been forced, but um, I've also forced myself. And I think it's really important. I think we hold ourselves to such a high bar um, and we want not to disappoint people, but really nobody would be disappointed. It's probably just the standard we're holding ourselves to that's unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, an example I always give is, you know, I've got male business partners and I'd sort of noticed over time, at first I would chuckle and then I realized actually this still works. You know, if, if, one of my male partners needed to shift a meeting, wasn't going to make a commitment. Um, I don't know, wasn't going to do something, whatever it was to say, uh, it was one line. It was like, doesn't work anymore. Let's reschedule. Mm. Um, whereas if I was doing that, whether it was an email, anything, I'd be like, I'd start by saying, sorry for not coming back to you. I'm sorry. I've got to tell you this, 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 this apologies that I'm not going to make it after all. You know, I would probably write four lines to his one line and I'd start it with an apology. And and his message was, you know, just as clear as mine, probably more clear, but it wasn't apologetic. He wasn't sorry that he had to move. You know, it is what it is. It had to move. He was giving a heads up, extending that courtesy. And it was sort of like, you know, very unapologetic. And I sort of realized that, that we, and I think women more generally, we apologize much more than men do. But I do wonder why we hold ourselves to these standards. So I I really know, because I remember thinking at the time, sort of observing and just being watchful about what other people were doing, how they were responding. Oh, he doesn't get any flack. Oh, he doesn't actually feel bad. He doesn't, you know, so <laughs> observing that was really helpful because you kind of witness to it and you can kind of see. And then it was sort of forcing me to realize it too. So there would be times where I would genuinely have to cancel at the last minute and may, and it was it was the right thing to do something was happening at a company and I'd need to drop something in order to make that or maybe you know there was something happening with a government meeting that that I should prioritize um, you know for something else and so once I started there were legitimate reasons to sort of pull back on things I then sort of realized actually, no one's judging my prioritization. (laughs) Only I judge it, right? No, I don't have to check with, you know, Ramita to say, is it okay that I'm going to attend something with the prime minister? So can we shift our interview? I'm sure she would say yes. I should be able to say yes. Ramita will trust me. You know, I shouldn't have to explain or give an excuse or give the reason. I, I hold enough judgment, you know, in and of myself to say the prime minister. So I'll move this or it's sports day. So I'm going to move this or it's just quality time and I want to do the school run. So I'm going to move this. And I just started doing that and realizing, you know, I don't need to explain to other people. I don't owe anybody else an explanation for how I prioritize my time. Mm -hmm. You know, they trusted me if it was for a work reason, they should trust me if it's for a life reason. And it's only myself that has to be comfortable with that. And that has taken a while, but that's where I am. I finally got to that place. And I think that's been you know, really, really empowering. It also, I have to admit, obviously, I'm hugely privileged because I, I don't have a manager or a boss that I have to answer to or explain. You know, that helps a lot. There's, there's, you know, no question. But even when I never did, or for the last 10 years, I used to hold myself to a much higher bar, a much higher standard, not higher bar, actually a different standard yeah. that I think was unrealistic um, and less about sort of self-care um, and also the balance than I do now. That's amazing. But just for the record, I mean, if you were meeting with the prime minister, you would definitely cancel on him if we were meeting. And take, oh, so sorry, I've got a meeting with Ramita. Yes, yeah, I yeah, yeah. The priority would be with me. <laughs> um, that's what I just wanted to clarify, Ali. Um, no, and, and on that note, my gosh, like, do you sometimes have to tell yourself, this is Eileen with the mother hat on, this is Eileen with the 
prime minister's advisor hat on, or this is the Eileen, you know, with the venture capitalist hat on. Do you do you find yourself having to switch between identities, or you sort of found yourself a nice sort of transitional balance now? Are you are you kind of there? I think that I do find myself with different tones of voice because some you know, sometimes the kids or Tom, my partner, will sort of say, "Oh, you still got your work voice on." But it happens really quickly. It happens quicker and quicker. And I think one thing that's wonderful about having a family is, you know, it 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 brings it down to to what's most important. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't matter who I've met with during the day. It doesn't matter what fires I was fighting with work. What matters is, you know, somebody wore the wrong kit to school and we've got to sort that for the next day. Like it really brings it down to, um, you know, what's important in life, right? And it sort of, it, 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 keeps, it keeps you grounded. And so it ends up being, that ends up being not very hard to do. Wow. I mean, how lucky your children are to have you um, as them. Oh, that's very good. Up to, I think you're right. The whole getting the right kit day on the right day is obviously a massive win. If you manage to get that, <laughs> I think you manage to give prime ministers all sorts of a good advice. And then, what do you do for yourself? Do you, are there things that you absolutely make time for for you and yourself? Diane? I think what I love, and I try and get that maybe once every other week when the when the children aren't in the house, is I do love a lion. Must have a lion like on a Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll do that. And even if I'm not asleep, this is what my partner doesn't get because he's like if you're awake why don't you just come downstairs I'm like no I'm comfortable I just like the idea of sort of being lazy in bed um but I do I do you know I escape by reading a lot um I love reading I love film you know I love music and so I do sort of those kind of classic escapes I don't actually have any hobbies it's not like um I play golf and even as kind as you are I force myself to run um because I think otherwise my knees are going to get too stiff I'm not going to be able to you know um move around as much um and so I'll do that every once in a while to sort of remind myself okay I still can um yeah otherwise yeah it is just about just winding down switching off um and and just focusing on relaxing versus you know everything else that's going on and I'm lucky to get to do that every other week (laughs) yeah I know I think you're onto something there there's just I mean can I send my kids to you every other week (laughs) it might be nice Um, so I've said to you I think you're an incredible role model for for lots of young children I think you've you've got two daughters of your own um you probably wouldn't say anything different to them that you've already said to me today but is there anything that you'd like to say to young girls out there and then secondly could you tell me who your role models are Oh, wow. Great question. So I don't know that there's anything else I'd offer to other girls out there other than, you know, back yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something because you're a girl or you shouldn't do something because you're a girl. That's the most rubbish thing I've ever heard. Just don't buy that. That'd be the one thing. And, um, and, and don't be afraid to question why on things, you know, it's, oh, it's always been that way, or this is how we're going to do it. You know, just kind of in your head, start to think, why is that? And, and there's, probably a reason. And 90% of the time it might be the right reason, but every once in a while you'll find out it's a reason that people actually haven't thought about for a long time. Right. Um, and so to kind of always question and challenge that I think is, is a good sort of skill, even just a mental exercise and then start deciding based on confidence and context when it's, when it's uh, helpful to say that loud. Um, in terms of role models for me, you know, I, I think, like I said, I was really lucky that my parents always instilled me with confidence. I remember um, thinking as I was growing up, I would look up to people, whether they were, you know, the president or something like that, you know, people um, 
in positions of, of great influence. It didn't dawn on me to have female role models more so than male role models. I, I actually just uh, saw them, you know, if I saw a man, you know, male president, I didn't think I couldn't be um, a female president, for example. Mm-hmm. I was recently really, really moved though by, and I kind of think it, was, it wasn't a conscious thing. I've always had huge respect for her, of course, but, you know, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, really affected me. And I sort of did even more reading, you know, based I'd already known she was amazing, but having then read her whole story, um, you know, and what she's done, at, you know, I didn't know, for example, in law school when her husband got on Wells, she took notes from his classes at the same time as she was doing her classes. And then she had a two-year-old at home. I mean, I don't know how. Yeah. I really don't know how. Yeah. And, I did, yeah. I did a similar yeah. thing. I reread yeah. and watched all of her things and I was... And then I cried. Yeah. I sobbed. I absolutely sobbed. Yeah. What a force she was, really. Um, exactly. Yeah, so more people like her. Yes, more, more, and more, more people like her. What, what a wonderful way of paving the way for us. I, I do think what you're saying about blissful ignorance is, is obviously fabulous. And I think having that is a good thing. So let's try and keep telling girls that there are no differences between girls and boys. I think that's a, a wonderful thing. And, and, and I don't know if there's anything you want to speak to in terms of what you do in, in, in the work that you're doing with supporting females or, or sort of on a closing note just anything that you're doing at the moment or anything other girls can get involved in that might be listening to this or things people can look into steps they might take to follow your career path sure i mean there's so much um to said but i think you know just uh, don't be afraid to ask questions contact you know and connect with people which is what i know you're you're helping to do with elevate which is amazing you know other people to learn more about things and explore i think that's all great what I'm spending a lot of time on now, or trying to anyway, is on um, reproductive health and sort of bringing more attention to that conversation. You, I paused a little bit because I hesitated on saying women's health because I think it's kind of crazy that if something's affecting you know 50% of the population that we characterize it or marginalize it as women's health, it's just health. Um, you know, if uh, 50% of the population you know broke their arm, I don't know as regularly as women have periods, for example, we wouldn't call it like um, an arm-breaking health thing. We'd call it a health matter. Um, So I've been looking into more of that and, um, you know, wanting um, greater accessibility resource and information about reproductive health, reproductive health choices. Um, You know, also the fact that for so long, you know, pharmaceutical clinical trials weren't um, conducted on women. So 60 to 70% of all commercial pharmaceuticals have never been tested on women. You know, all these um, sorts of things. I've, I've been thinking a lot about health and it, it it's, yeah, it boggles the mind. Um, so that's another thing, you know, you don't have to think about a career in tech as such. Mm-hmm. But since I believe, you know, tech will enable so many things in every sector. For instance, if one's interested in healthcare and just what happens with their bodies and, you know, what's the best way to look after ourselves, that could lead to, um, you know, a career or work um, in tech after all, because that might be how we actually influence the change. Oh, seriously. I could listen to you speak for hours, Eileen. This is so so informative. It's been so inspiring. I've learned so much. Um, Not that I wasn't already in awe of you before, but I feel like I'm in even greater awe of you. I'm just really, really hopeful that people will listen to you and feel that they can roll their sleeves up and get to it and do whatever they want in life as well. You've really given me a wonderful message to share with other people. And I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation. So thank you. Thank thank you. you. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Sorry, I rambled on so much with my stories, but I've really enjoyed it. And if you know, there's anyone who wants to connect as a result or to talk more about tech, I'm happy to do that again with you, Ramita, or whatever way is helpful. 
not only are you incredibly successful in every way, but you're also very, very kind and very generous with your time. So thank you. Thank you. Well, that's left me feeling really uplifted and encouraged. I loved listening to Eileen talk and I hope all of you at home enjoyed it as much as I did and found it as inspiring as I did. I hope you will share this message with your girls and pass it on to other parents. I really, really want to spread awareness and hope we can carry on doing the good work of lifting our girls. A massive shout out of thanks to our audio engineer, Duncan McPherson, for helping us bring this podcast to you. And I would really appreciate it if you would share, rate and review the Elevate podcast. Until next time, I look forward to talking to you again soon.